I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending January 17th. In this episode, a company called Prophecy has developed a completely new way to capture video with what it calls an event-based sensor. At the recent CES show, we caught up with Prophecy's CEO, Luca Ver. Today, you'll hear our interview with him. Also, the Consumer Electronics Show. It's vast. CES 2020 was last week. EE Times editors saw more products and technologies and sat in on more sessions than we had time to write about. We've got together to discuss some of the most fascinating things we saw at the show, including the Prophecy event-based sensor, autonomous boats, data privacy chips, quantum computers, smart toilets, automated cocktail shakers, farm equipment, AI-powered toothbrushes, and more. Prophecy is a startup based in France that is one of the companies pursuing an interesting new twist on video cameras. It's unconventional enough to merit a brief explanation before we move on. The approach is called event-driven sensing, and it is fundamentally different from the way moving images have been captured since the beginning of motion pictures and television. For more than a century, film and video cameras have captured a series of still images, one after another, at brief intervals of time. Displaying the video depends on flickering through each still frame, one after another. Now, once you get past a certain minimum frame rate, human eyes perceive the progression of images as uninterrupted motion. The basic idea behind event-driven sensing is to capture and record only what has changed in the scene in front of the image sensor from one moment to the next. EE Times has been interested in this company's technology because event-driven cameras could offer one of the answers, if not all, to the fundamental problems this industry is facing. How to handle big data inside advanced vehicles or any other connected embedded devices. So, Prophecy was at last week's Consumer Electronics Show, and international editor Junko Yoshida caught up with the company's CEO, Luca Vera. You're showing something, you know, a couple of interesting demonstrations here, so I just want to get law done from here. One of the first things that I saw when I came in, what were you showing? That was the HD version of your event-based yes. sensor. So tell me a little bit about that. We have a new sensor generation, which is yeah. uh, an HD sensor, so 1 million pixel, yeah. 720p. Um, this is the result of uh, joint collaboration we have done with uh, Sony, which will be published at ISCCC uh, in, in February in San Francisco. I see. So right now, what you have as product, commercial products right now from Prophecy, that is VGA-based. Yes. The commercial product we have is yeah. a VGA sensor. Yeah. Uh, is in mass production, and we yeah. are currently deploying shipping for industrial applications. This is sort of an interesting development here because, uh, well, ISCC is essentially a technical paper, so we're not talking about commercial plans, I understand. But obviously, you guys had to work together. It's not just um, it's a joint joint development has been going on some time to produce this paper right yes indeed there has yeah. been some research work done together with Sony uh, yeah. yes Sony is uh, yeah. indeed interested in event-based technology yeah um, but 
Unfortunately, I cannot tell more than that. In, in terms of actual application, they are keeping mum. They they are telling us. All yes. right, or you can't tell us. All right, got it. <laughs> All right. So why do you think that HD is more important than VGA? I mean, in, in what sort of instances that people want yeah. HD? HD is important because, uh, of course, increasing resolution uh, enables us to open more doors to applications to look, for example, farther to um, farther distance right. for, oh, for automotive okay. applications, for example, uh, as well as for some industrial and IoT applications. Yeah. Uh, also, one of the main challenges we have been uh, solving uh, moving from the VGA sensor to the HD sensor mm -hmm. is uh, uh, the capability now to stack the sensor, to use a very advanced technology node that enables us to reduce the pixel pitch. Uh, so to make ah. actually the sensor much smaller and cost-effective. So um, can I say automotive is one of your key markets that you're getting for? Yes, indeed. Automotive yeah. uh, remains one of the key verticals we are targeting uh, yeah. because our technology, event-based technology, uh, shows clear benefit in that space with respect to low latency detection, uh, low data rate, and uh, high dynamic range. Right. And uh, what are you hearing from OEMs that what problems they really want to uh, solve when they decide to work with you? When uh, both OEMs and Tier 1s work with uh, Prophecy and event-based technology, what the uh, main pain point they are trying to solve is uh, uh, to reduce the amount of data generated uh, in both uh, uh, level 2, level 3, or level 4, level 5 type of applications, yeah. uh, because in both cases they are uh, looking for redundant solutions, so multimodal system that generate today a huge amount of data. Yep. So by adding an event-based sensor, they see the benefit of reducing this bandwidth by a factor of 20 or 30. Yeah, you said something interesting. So you say that, that the car companies can probably continue to use frame-based camera, but your event-based camera can be used as sort of like a um, warning, early warning signals? Yes, uh, because uh, our sensor is um, uh, always on, there's no effectively a frame oh. rate and is capable with low latency to detect uh, relevant regions of interest. Right. Then we can use this information to steer the uh, attention of the, other technologies, maybe LiDAR or radar right. or frame-based so sensor. The, the object yeah. of interest can be spotted much faster. faster yeah. Okay. All right. So the one thing that I took away from one of the um, the demonstration you showed me was that comparison, the use of frame-based camera versus event-based camera in terms of AEB, yeah. automatic emergency brake. And, and I think you mentioned that, what was the automotive, American Automotive? Uh, automotive American Association, uh, they published uh, some numbers showing that uh, uh, in the case of AEB, in 69% of the case, the uh, current system fail yeah. when it comes to detect uh, an adult. Uh, when it comes to detect uh, actually a child is 89% uh, is of the time <laughs> the system fail and at night most of the time actually fail. So it's still uh, a great challenge despite the fact that actually <coughs> AB will become mandatory in right. a few years from now. Right. Uh, so we did some tests in some controlled environment uh, with one of the largest OEM in Europe and we compare side by side the frame-based sensor with an event-based sensor showing that uh, while the frame-based camera system was failing, even in uh, fusion with a radar system, our system was actually capable to detect uh, pedestrians in both daylight conditions and nightlight conditions. 
nice. What's the cost comparison between event-based camera versus uh, frame-based camera? The sensor itself is uh, very similar because it's okay. a CMOS process, so yeah. uh, it's cost of silicon, so in volume is the same price as a conventional image sensor. Yeah. The benefit you actually bring is more at the processing level because the, the reduction of the amount of data uh, comes so with the benefit the, of lower processing Right, so power. they have the impact for the rest yes. of the system, yeah. right, right, yes. right. All right, very good. Prophecy is one hot little startup. Back in October, the company raised another $28 million in funding, bringing its total to roughly $68 million. Among Prophecy's strategic partners are Renault, Nissan, and Huawei. International correspondent Nitin Dahad, roving reporter David Benjamin, Junko, and I were all at the recent Consumer Electronics Show roaming the halls, ferreting out the most interesting new technologies and stories. We all covered a lot of ground, and we saw a lot of things we didn't get to write about for one reason or another. So Nitin, Junko, and I got together on a conference call to go over some of it. So Nitin, tell us what the experience of CES 2020 was like. Wow. Okay, so it was my first CES after 10 years, and uh, boy, was it different. Uh, it was big, and when I entered the hotel, I thought, uh, where's the hotel lobby? You know, this is just a casino. <laughs> yeah, that's Las Vegas, isn't it? <laughs> There's always a casino in the lobby. So, Junko, you're a veteran of CES. What was your CES 2020 like? Yeah, I wouldn't want to divulge how many years I've been to CES Many, many years, decades, actually. <clears throat> no, this, uh, this CES was uh, interesting. Uh, you know, every year uh, we see a whole bunch of new stuff, but I think this year it's sort of um, the, 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 um, the crowd was just as big as ever, but I think I picked up, um, you know, a few trends that are going to be important for the uh, next 10 years. I would also like to just say that... Um um, yeah, the f went straight in, obviously, on the Sunday to um, the tech trends and then the CES unveiled. And you know, I have to say, you know, there, there's a whole display of of what is possible and what is not possible, I guess, uh, at CES. And uh, it, it was actually quite uh, hard work and fun, you know, to, to look at all this because being, being sort of in technology for so many years, you know, it's really n nice to see some of those end products. Yeah, I, I agree, but it is a grueling show because it's it's just so immense i mean there there are three huge halls in the las vegas convention center there are usually three or four hotels all filled with stuff it's a lot to take in that said you know it's it's a lot of fun to see what the industry has come up with in a year junko tell us what you saw okay <clears throat> i would like to focus on two things actually one is you may not think this is uh, cool, but I think one is a protection of privacy. Yeah, the another thing is uh, big data. Let's start with the protection of privacy because I think, you know, everybody wants to talk about big data and everybody thinks big data is a given, but nobody is really doing anything to protect privacy except for EU coming up with GDPR, right? So how do you make sure that your products are not inadvertently violating GDPR? Or if you're consumers, um, how do you protect yourself so that 
all that you're saying into Alexa or all that you're saying to Siri or all your, you know, uh, you're interacting with smartphones and uh, wearables, uh, you know, your private data are not going straight to the clouds and being shopped around by the people who manage data, right? So it was interesting that I came across a company called D-Clock, you know, D-E-C-L-O-A-K, D-Clock, and uh, the technology is a piece uh, piece of hardware, actually, to de-identify yourself. You know, this is the kind of technology Silicon Valley startup would never think of doing it because they think their business is collecting data. But this company, small company in Taiwan, they think that this is going to be big in the era of GDPR. Everybody wants to protect their privacy. So why not we put this little chip in a dongle, stick it into the smartphone, or over long term, this chip can go inside any embedded systems so that the technology will, will let the data aggregator to see the forest, but not the tree. And, and what does it do? Does it anonymize the data somehow before it gets sent? Yeah, this is, they use the random number generator ah, so that uh, they will give the, they, they can give the trend, but they hide all the private information. Apparently, someone from DAPA was interested in it, <laughs> came by. <laughs> And I said, well, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing. You know, they might want to reverse engineer this thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you're law enforcement, it's also a kind of nightmare, right? Okay, true. Yet in the U.S., we take it as a given. Uh, we assume we have certain privacy rights and protections. And those privacy protections and rights aren't necessarily codified into law in other countries around the world. So this is certainly an issue around the world. But even in the U.S., it's a bigger concern than most people might realize. Yeah, big data. This also connects to big data because I, you know, as I walked around and talked to different people, I realized that everybody, you know, without saying so much, but everybody's struggling with big data, right? I cover automotive, and automotive use a lot of different sensors, including computer vision, you know, lighters and radars, and especially lighters. Oh, my God. That point clouds that it generates, it's uh, the data, uh, the amount of data is so huge. So the question is that uh, if you have to deal with so much big data within the embedded system, how do you deal with it, right? You can put the big CPU or GPU inside the machine to, you know, um, process the data. Um, or you would say that, well, we add the AI engine so that it filters out. But the truth is, you really need to figure out a way to extract the information that it needs before it goes to, say, video compression or sensor fusion. And there's a little company in uh, Berlin called the Teraki. So that they, they, they were showing this technology. That was kind of interesting because Teraki's soft piece of software can run on um, safety microcontroller like Infineon's Oryx or the um, NXP's uh, Blue Box. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. So it's doing some pre-processing. It's pulling information out of the data before sending it along? Exactly. So it's a piece of software that, that, that works at the very edge, but it has the ability to filter out all the noise and the information that it needs for later uh, AI training or sensor fusion, whatnot. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. So, Nitin, 
you were exploring all over CES and you found a boat? I certainly did. And yeah, that's one of my, my themes. You know, it, autonomous is not just for cars, as we've been talking about for the last few years. So um, there's a company called Brunswick, which pressed me quite hard to go to their press conference, I guess, to talk about the first ever boat unveiling at CES. It, it, you know, when you look at it, actually, uh, it's an electric boat, a luxury 40-foot electric boat with, obviously, backup motors and everything. But um, it can run on uh, for eight hours with all the, the stuff that you use on there as well. And it's got all the usual stuff that you'd see in, in the cars, you know, the LiDAR, the sensors, the communication systems. So what I think the CEO of Brunswick was trying to impress on uh, people at the, the briefing was it's really uh, almost the same as your cars. And, you know, that's why we're at CES. Uh, we want to uh, show off our boat. Obviously, there was other stuff as well in terms of autonomous and or autonomous features. I mean, there was an e-bike which had blind spot assist, which may may not sound new, but they've already got a production model. Yeah, it's an Indian startup, and I think they're crowdfunding at the moment. If I if I'm right, basically, when a when a truck or a car or a, even a cow comes up beside you, I guess you know this this thing buzzes on your handlebar to say you know there's something on the side. And then, uh, yeah, there was the um, autonomous cannabis grower. Actually, you know, what they had on the booth was growing cannabis, but you know, it's actually uh, any herbs or any plants. And you know, it's using a Raspberry Pi, an Arduino, a camera module, some environmental sensors, and they've got some training modules. And they said it takes, in this cabinet, three months to grow cannabis and probably uh, anything else, I'm sure. I'd, I don't know how long how long it takes to grow cannabis, but uh, it is quite interesting in the way they're using you know, the basic computing, the sensors, and the AI. And that's kind of a theme that I was seeing everywhere, actually. You use very simple stuff. And this company, by the way, was called Altifarm. Again, it's a startup from India. I just happened to, because I was on Eureka Park, happened to go into the... just happened. And then the other thing, I suppose, was, is this really the best use of tech? And when I was walking past the Amazon booth or space, whatever you call it, they had a, a Lamborghini, which they said was the first car with Alexa control built in. Do you really need it? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, there's a lot of chip companies like Qualcomm. They actually uh, demoed the, the Alexa in a car last year. So I think it's going to spread. Okay. You know, it's a hands-free control, right? Mm. That's, so it's, it's going to make sense. Yeah, you're in your Lamborghini tooling around it. 100 kilometers per hour around Monaco. And hey, that's when you need to ask Alexa to find you a restaurant that serves the best Portuguese bacalao <laughs> because you don't want to take your eyes off the road as you're screaming around corners in your sleek performance machine, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, well, um, it's kind of uh, the reason I sort of picked it up is because I'd also interviewed a Formula One driver from McLaren, Lando Norris. And you, you see the video on, on online, but. Um, one of the things he said is, you know, he wants that control to be able to sort of steer the car, move it around, whatever. So I'm not sure where the Alexa features come in, but I'm sure that there's, there's got to be some real uses for it. It's just that it seemed quite yeah, extravagant to have Alexa in a Lamborghini. Uh, well, well, speaking of extravagance and Alexa, didn't one of the two of you see a bed equipped with Alexa, like, like a smart bed? Yes. That was knitting. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> 
so again, you know, sort of uh, in the same space where they had the, the Lamborghini, uh, Amazon was also showing smart beds and uh, with, oh, elec- what, what, with Alexa what, what, built in. Why? Uh, uh, so, you know what? I didn't dig into it. I, I mean, you know, why would you want uh, somebody snooping in whatever you're doing in the bedroom? I'm not sure. <laughs> and, and supposedly there are sensors in the bed. Uh, they'll record your sleep metrics, like how much you toss and turn, that sort of thing. Yes, actually. Uh, so in um, so when I walked through one of the booths in the the, the sands, I think it was, and um, uh, they had the whole smart home section, which actually was quite big. And I walked past a smart bed, and out of curiosity, I just said uh, to the the p- person demoing it, I said, uh, "Okay, so if I lie on lie on there now, will it measure my vital signs?" And she said, no, uh, it's actually, uh, it'll do the processing and then it might give it to you in the morning. Uh, so I wasn't sure what the use of that was. And that was my point of saying, yeah, is this a really use, best use of tech or is it, what's the point of it? But I guess, I guess it's going to evolve. Well, you know, how many things that don't require electricity now are, are we going to end up plugging in? I know. So, so over the past few years, we've just seen company after company introduce things at CES for improving sleep or improving the quality of sleep. And they all cite statistics that sleep deficits are are very common. And they've introduced headbands and helmets and nose plugs and all sorts of other devices aimed at helping you sleep better. Yeah. Are you guys having that much trouble sleeping? Um, I do, <laughs> but uh, I don't think I, I don't think I'll be plugging into something to say, uh, yeah, put me to sleep. Although, uh, actually, going on the plane, I managed to find a piece of music that did actually help me sleep. So, <laughs> oh, so, so maybe we've got an assignment for you next month, Nitin. <laughs> so we've all seen espresso makers that the ones that work with the pods, and those made sense because you know if you want to make an espresso, you need a, a special machine anyway, right? And, and it's a big process. But this year, one of those companies introduced a, a cocktail mixer. Ooh, really? <laughs> yeah. And as much as I'm, ha- I was happy to get a, a cocktail uh, because I, I really needed a Moscow Mule at 4 p.m. Uh, floor of CES that day. Um, h- how hard is it to pour a cocktail that you need another machine to do it yeah. for you? I, I'm, I, I actually walked past that and I avoided it. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I, I walked past and, and avoided completely were the smart toilets. Oh. I mean, I, I don't want to plug in my toilet. And, and frankly, I don't want it to be that intelligent either. Well, in Japan, I, when I went to Tokyo a few years ago, yeah, I did see uh, some what you would call smart toilets maybe. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 the issue of cleanliness, and Japanese are meticulous about you know how clean it must be. So it's not about toilet; it's not just about toilet, but how you clean yourself. You know, everything to do with personal hygiene. You know, the Japanese are really you know meticulous about that, right? So I didn't see the one in CES, but I'm guessing if they're smart toilets, they'll probably analyze uh, your excretions to see you know sort of how well you're doing. Oh yeah, I, I yeah. saw something like that last year. Um, it had a camera, and it was AI-based, and it looked inside baby diapers and analyzed what had come out so you can presumably make better decisions about what goes in. Yeah. You know, I think what really comes down to is just because you can doesn't mean 
it needs to have that technology. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, yeah, that's that's really too prevalent in CES. It's just a little too much. Yeah, I, I don't know that I need to plug in a toothbrush just so that it can give me teeth brushing right. metrics. I did. I did actually try that. I went to the Procter and Gamble um, booth and actually tried it. And you know, for me, uh, it was quite a revelation because I the week before I actually did go to the dentist and he told me off for not brushing properly. So what this actually did uh, was actually allowed me to figure out where I wasn't brushing right. So that that map on the phone of you know, where I was and wasn't, because it's using accelerometers uh, and um, you know, position sensors to actually determine where in the mouth it is uh, wow. relative to your start point. Yeah. So then that's how it measures where it's going. Would I would I spend $200 uh, plus dollars on, on that just to tell me if I was doing it right or should I go to the dentist and get him to tell me off? I don't know. Well, well yeah, okay. You've convinced Sold. me for you know the yeah. right price. Maybe, maybe an electric toothbrush is worth it. So- any other observations from your peregrinations around CES? You know, Brian, you should talk about what you found, actually, because um, the Sands essentially has a whole bunch of startups doing some interesting stuff, but a lot of times that uh, do we need this kind of technologies are all crammed into Sands, right? No offense to anybody. You know, they are creative, but at the same time, you know, it's too much navel gazing. Gazing is going on too much information, <laughs> in my in my opinion. But they're also is sort of surprisingly non-consumerist technologies were on display at CS, right, Brian? Oh yeah. So I was amazed by this. Really great to see. But there's no way that the IBM quantum computer can, in any way, shape, or form, be considered uh, consumer electronics. <laughs> that said, you know, for whatever reason it was at CES, it was cool to see IBM's Q quantum computer in the grand lobby there. The central hall, yeah, right. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah. It, it looks like something out of a, a sci-fi movie. I mean, it's in this glass-enclosed case. Beautiful, right? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. <laughs> it, it's cryogenically cooled. It's vacuum-sealed. It's this... Gold gleaming tiered mechanism with with pipes and connections and they're um, they're, they're all symmetrically shaped and and, and placed. Um, yeah, it's it's just this wicked cool looking device. Um, so what IBM's quantum computer Q does? There are different ways to do quantum computing, but but mm-hmm. IBM's Q takes a, a particular approach where. They look at electron spin. The electron is the the quanta, right? Mm. And the way it was explained to me is, um, you, you think of the electron as as a globe, and you assign values to to points on the globe. So it's spinning on its axis, and the top axis you assign that as a, a value of one, and the bottom axis you you assign the value of zero, and Every other point around the globe represents uh, some mm. other value, and, and you've got like this almost infinite number of values between right. one and zero. Um, so you physically add these electrons into the Q, you know that, and and each electron is considered a qubit, a quantum bit, or a a qubit, and you cool them down 
progressively from physical layer to physical layer, from top to bottom. So the top layer in the machine is cooled to maybe a few Kelvin. And as you drop from tier to tier to tier, um, you're cooling it more and more to, to millikelvins. And at the end, so what happens is, is that the electrons are active and, and they get less active as they cool down and they physically collapse as they move down mm. through these tiers and, and they collapse towards specific values. And IBM and, and the people, researchers that they've been working with, they've developed these sophisticated algorithms that, that predict the behaviors of these electrons as they drop through the layers well enough to, to exploit the physical process um, as a kind of a model that they can model the algorithms on. Uh, frankly, the mathematics are, are way beyond me. But the upshot is, is that you could do these amazing things with, uh, with the IBM Q computer. The example that they've been using for a couple of years is, is uh, a caffeine molecule. Now, you know, on the scale of molecules, caffeine isn't all that complex, but uh, modeling a caffeine molecule is way more sophisticated than, than most regular supercomputers can do quickly. And, that's what a quantum computer can do. It can do these amazingly sophisticated, highly complex calculations, you know, pretty rapidly. Now, that was known. But what was new um, was that IBM is building um, a quantum computing farm up in Poughkeepsie. Um, they've got 15 of these machines there so far. And... Um, they're providing access to them as, as they've been providing access individually to each of you know to each individual quantum computer. Uh, they're they're still providing access. It's sort of like um, quantum as a service. Um, and one of the interesting things was I, I asked uh, the researcher there if you can gang these. Um, and, and I'm not even sure why, and, and he wasn't even sure why you might want to gang them up, but they're exploring ways to make that possible. Um, he was explaining there's new research that allows them to take uh, the quantum activity and switch it over to photonic so that you end up with optical computing uh, to gang the, the 15 cues or, or more as you go forward. Um, it's really fascinating stuff. Okay, and, and then now for something completely different from a quantum computer. Um, I wandered over to the John Deere booth. That's a huge machine they I, have. I know, in the booth, it's right? enormous. It's a spray machine? Yeah, yes, what that's it. That? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'm mostly an urban kind of a guy. And you know, walking into that John Deere booth, looking at all this farming equipment, I had to learn a whole new vocabulary. Like, like, uh, what's that big thing over there? And it's like, oh, that's a combine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, Let's right. start from there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had to, they had to train me from the basics just to talk to them about it. So, so what that was there was a sprayer, and a sprayer is this enormous machine. Um, you know, roughly the size of uh, like a sanitation vehicle it picks up your garbage in the cities. Um, and it has on either side these two long booms. Um, might be, I don't know, I'd guesstimate maybe like 30 feet long. 
and, and set along these booms at intervals of like, I don't know, maybe eight or nine or 10 inches uh, were these spray nozzles. And uh, those are for applying uh, fertilizer or herbicide. Um, so they've had uh, sprayers that have had cameras on the booms for a while now. But what they're developing now, and they think they're about two years away with this thing, what they're developing now is, is that they'll have each nozzle with a camera and, and each camera will have its own processor. Ah, right. Now, now John Deere is becoming um, a tech company. They, they identify themselves as a technology company now. And, and they feel that their strength is developing algorithms. Um, so what's coming is an AI-based sprayer. And the idea is they'll be able to drive these sprayers through the fields. And at the speed they're going, they'll be each boom – each camera will be hovering over any given plant for roughly about a third of a second. And in that time, um, this AI-based camera will determine whether it's hovering over a soybean plant or a weed, uh, you know, or, you know, a, a corn stalk or a weed. And it'll have that third of a second to decide which it is, and whether or not to hit it with an herbicide. Now, the value of this is that they figure that they'll be able to target herbicides or target fertilizers. With herbicides, they think that they might be able to cut down the chemical application instead of just spewing herbicides over the entire uh, field they might be able to cut their herbicide application down by 90%. They'll, they'll just cut the chemical application by 90%. And uh, with, a, with fertilizer, uh, similarly, by, by being able to target the plants, um, they'll be able to, to reduce the amount of you know, chemicals overall that uh, farmers have to use in the fields, save money that way. There's one more thing about that, actually, because it's not just about the reduction of the chemicals. Um, when you look at the bigger picture, uh, growing population, world population, how do you feed them? I mean, from my travels, I've seen quite a lot on sort of figuring out precision agriculture. And uh, so... Uh, one of the startups I saw in Taiwan uh, uh, last year uh, was was doing exactly that, and you know they've got sort of contracts in in Europe to enable people to make make it more efficient to make food, basically. Right, right, right. So I sat in on a a session about using technology to to make people's lives better, and uh, the speakers included um, someone from the World Bank. Uh, which is investing in this sort of thing. Um, uh, someone from the government in Bangladesh, um, another person representing the government of Colombia. And the idea is to use emerging technologies like AI, like 5G, uh, to improve people's lives, to find out ways to do that. Um, and and it's, it's really inspiring. In theory, I guess. Actually, no, there, there is practice. <laughs> there is practice now. So the examples they gave in Colombia, um, people in Colombia are, are slapping up homes, um, in some cases, uh, using whatever materials are at hand. And the problem is that many, many of these homes are, are substandard. 
and it's questionable if they can stand up in a in an earthquake or or you know stand up if there's a landslide or or even stand up if there's a hard rain all right so the government's goal is to to spend money uh, to help bring up the standards of of some of these homes, but the question is which ones they they want to target uh, their limited funds on homes that really do need to be to be brought up to par. So what they've done is they're they've they're sending out vehicles, sort of like um, the the vehicles you see uh, that do the mapping for Google Maps, um, and it's a similar idea. And what they do is they take um, video, they take imagery of of all of the homes that they pass by, and then they use that to build a map of the communities that they've they've gone through. And then they apply AI uh, to evaluate uh, what each individual homes, what the materials were used in building those, um, you know, get a sense of what the condition of each home is. And by doing that, they can take those maps the, that they've made and figure out where within those communities they should be targeting um, their investment money. So, so that's you know just one example. Now, ba- Bangladesh, for instance, uh, they're dealing with climate change, um, and it's a very exceptionally serious thing for Bangladesh because if it's not checked, if climate change is not checked relatively soon, um, roughly a third of the country could be underwater in a couple of decades. Um, And as it is, natural disasters that used to come every 100 years or 500 years, these are coming like every year, every other year now, floods especially. Uh, So what what they need is an our early warning systems. So they're trying to use modern communication systems uh, for for communications. They're trying to use AI for uh, predicting where natural disasters might strike and and how severe they might be. And that's all for the purpose of setting up early warning systems. Uh, so there are some really practical applications of all of these high tech systems being employed right now today. The UK could, UK could, parts of the UK yep. could be underwater as well, you know, if it goes as well. So just, <laughs> you know, in some coastal areas. Yeah. New York City, Los Angeles, Miami. Yeah. But just, um, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, the, the homes and analyzing uh, the materials to make sure that they're safe. So that actually brings us back to some of the technologies we talk about in EE Times, because um, I'm seeing uh, people using things like uh, sound and you know, the, the resonant frequencies of, of certain materials to identify them and uh, radar. Uh, so VR imaging is you know, sort of doing a lot of that, you know, where they're sort of getting the signatures of, of various things so that then you know, they can do fall detection, they can do lots of other things. Uh, and I, I, I don't have any interest in them. It's just that that came to my mind. Um, so the um, it is about using uh, all the different technologies we talk about in, say, uh, things like autonomous vehicles, but they're actually being used in lots of other areas as well. Yeah. So I, I wrote a story uh, a couple of years ago about the the city of Busan in South Korea, and they're on the yep. south uh, the Sea of Japan. Uh, they're at the confluence of two major rivers. Um, they're up against some hills, so they've got uh, flash floods, uh, potential for tidal waves, uh, they get potential for landslides. So what they've done is they've installed sensors 
all over the city for uh, so so that they can get uh, early warning for for natural disasters. They can warn their citizens um, that well, you know whatever it is that whatever natural disaster might be occurring, and um, yeah, it's things like that. There are mm. there are modern applications of high technology. Um, it's incredibly useful, uh, helpful, can actually save lives, and it's invigorating and, and exciting to be able to report on, on all of these technological advances. I encourage you to check out our reporting from CES, which includes articles from the entire EE Times staff, some great photojournalism from David Benjamin, and several podcasts. Peruse the website at eetimes.com or take a look at the handy-dandy list of links we have on our webpage dedicated to this podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the year 2020. And now, let's leave it. It's time to enter the Wayback Machine to revisit some of the great moments in electronics history. On January 14th in 1914, that day saw the first product roll off the first industrial assembly line. It was, of course, a Model T automobile produced by the Ford Motor Company. The assembly line was one of the great innovations of the industrial age. A hundred years later, it's one of the fundamental enablers of producing everything from computer chips to Pringles potato chips. Which I deliberately mentioned because I only just recently found out one of those odd pieces of trivia that I live for. One of the people who helped create the machine used to create Pringles was author Gene Wolfe, uh, perhaps best known for his four-volume Book of the New Sun series. And okay, we absolutely have to include this one. On January 11th in 2001, Dave Weiner, then the CEO of Userland Software, was the first to demonstrate a specific tag for RSS feeds that would pass the URL address of a media file to an RSS aggregator. He called the tag Enclosure. He created it at the request of former MTV VJ, Adam Curry, who was then experimenting with what, at the time, was called audio blogging. Audio blogging is now commonly referred to as podcasting. And here we are. This month, we're also celebrating the birthday of Hal the Computer, which in the film 2001 reported that it became operational at the Hal plant in Urbana, Illinois on the 12th of January, 1992. His instructor was Mr. Langley, and Langley taught Hal to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, you'll have to watch the movie because we don't have the rights. Finally, on January 13th in 1910, the first public radio broadcast was transmitted. The engineer behind it was Lee DeForest, whose radio telephone company set up the transmission live from the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. It was a performance of an opera called Cavalleria Rusticana, and it featured a tenor by the name of Enrico Caruso. The sound quality was said to have been miserable, but the broadcast radius was several hundred miles, reaching into Connecticut and heard by ships far out at sea. Here's a separate recording of Crusoe, captured also in 1910, singing an aria from that opera. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending January 16th. 
This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio and was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com. You can find a new episode every Friday on our website or via your favorite app for podcasts. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.